cold and sunny winter over a milder gray winter. I, just, I need to see the sunshine, right? Because the sun, for me, affects my mind. And all that, that gray wears me out. It wears me down. All that, that gloominess. Because the mind itself, even processing something like that, the mind is incredibly complicated, and it's pretty simple at the same time. And we are working down transformation, right? They've been working down transformation. And, and today, I get to talk about mental transformation and mental health. When I told my wife I was speaking on, on mental health, we were actually leaving service maybe six weeks ago, and we're driving, well, I'm driving, and, and she's in the passenger seat. And I said, yeah, babe, I'm, I, I get to speak on, on mental health in like six weeks. And she's just staring straight ahead, and she says, that's fitting. 23 years of marriage, she knows I'm nuts. I mean, she's like, oh, my God, they haven't used to speak on mental health? Right? But the mind, the mind is where it all begins. And, and we want, I want a healthy mind. Because every action begins as a thought. Right? The, no one acts without thinking. We might say, oh, I wasn't thinking. No, you were thinking. It might have been a very fast impulsive thought that led to a fast, impulsive action. But you were thinking, there was a thought there. When I wake up in the morning, my mind is saying, it's time to get up, time to get dressed, time to go to work. My mind is telling me these things. It's a thought that produces action. A popular verse, Romans 12, too, you've heard it. Uh, in, most likely you connected in your mind to this version, New International Version. Don't conform to the pattern of the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But the New Living Translation, which we have here, says it in a more practical way, and it applies better to this message. It says, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. By changing the way we think. Because can we just admit it? A lot of the ways that we think are not healthy. They need changing. And a lot of times we say, no, God, God, just change my job, change my relationships, change my bank account status, change all these other things. And God's like, no, no, I have to change the way you think. Because your thought life in those areas affects the outcome of those areas. And if you don't change the way you think, wait for it, right? What? Nothing changes. If we don't change the way we think, nothing else will change. They say the definition of insanity is what? Doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. What about thinking the same thing over and over again? The same thought patterns and expecting different circumstantial change, different life change. It's not going to happen. You see, when we're stuck in a pattern of poor mental health, in our thoughts and our thinking, nothing changes. And so the simple overarching truth with this message is this. Your thoughts, my thoughts, control our life. They control my life. What goes on in here controls what happens all around me. There's that saying, you are what you eat. And last week we talked about physical health. Well, you are what you think. Proverbs 4.23 says, be careful how you think. Ready? 
Your life is shaped by your thoughts. Your life is shaped by what goes on here, what you're thinking, what's running through your mind. Everyone remember the, uh, the Pink Floyd song, uh, Another Brick in the Wall? We don't need no education. Thank you, thank you. I'm, I'm doing an autograph signing after. Right? We, we don't need no mind control, no thought control, right? And they're talking about like this mass context of, of governmental mind control. But here's the thing, here's the thing. I do need mind control in a certain context. Because what's happening in here is affecting everything that's happening around me. I need personal thought control. I do. You do. We do. And when I say that, maybe you say okay, automatically, like, boom, what am I thinking right now that I need to control? But, it, but it's deeper than that. Because we all have life, experience, past, and interactions. What were you thinking when you were five? What were you thinking when you were 10? What were you thinking when you were 20 years old? What patterns of thought have been ingrained deep inside of our subconscious? And not just, of course, from what we think, but what? From what others from without have said that is suggestive on our mental processes. What was said to me from without by other people? If you grew up with a parent who said you were, you were a disappointment or you were dumb, what thoughts pop in your mind throughout your life? If you had a childhood crush who said, I'm not attracted to you, you're ugly and just kind of crushed you, what thoughts carry now with you through your life? If you had a, a teacher or a coach and, and you were doing everything you could and they said, you know what, you're not trying hard enough, you're so lazy and you knew you were giving everything you had what thoughts then from those interactions carry now in your mind for the rest of your life? They shape us, even if it's subconsciously, and we're not really understanding how much they're shaping us, they're shaping us because they're there. You see, the human mind is complicated. It's also sticky. Stuff people says to us sticks. Perfect example, ready? Keanu Reeves riding a unicorn. Can we get a picture? Ta-da. Now it's stuck with you for weeks. You're welcome. Because a prerequisite to membership of this church is you have to swear your allegiance to all things Keanu. I'm only kidding. We don't have membership in this church. But if you want to be my friend, you have to swear. See, something simple as that. People say, don't think of purple dinosaurs. And people, what will happen in your mind? A purple dinosaur. Because the mind is sticky. It sticks. Images, thoughts, words, they stick. Everyone remember uh, DVRs? I feel like I say that like it was 30 years ago. It wasn't even that long ago. But remember how a DVR worked? Your favorite show would be on at 8 o'clock, and you'd be like, I'm not going to get home to 8.30, but I could hit... Uh, set it up on the DVR to record my show from 8 to 8.30, and then I couldn't get home, and then I could watch that show anytime I want after that. Right? And kids are like, wait a minute, there was a time you couldn't watch whatever you wanted whenever you want? That existed? Yes. We also walked, what, two miles to school, uphill, snow both ways, with Walkmans listening to Run DMC. Six miles 
You had it harder than me then. But remember the DVR? So, so the, if, if the mind, if the mind were a DVR, it, the storage capacity of the mind, if it were a DVR, this is what's incredible. It just blew my mind about the, the cerebral context and what happens in process. That the brain has enough storage capacity, if it were a DVR, that you could, you could record 300, 300, what is it, 300, 3 million hours of TV shows. The human brain could hit record, and it would take 300 years of continuous recording to use up all the storage in the human mind. It's mind-blowing. But think about this. Think of everything, Dan, if that's the storage capability of the human mind. Think of everything that is stuck in your mind that has happened to you and you've experienced over the course of your life. E even stuff you're not playing over in your mind, it's still in there. It's still shaping us. It's still guiding our thoughts. Shaping my actions. And listen, that's a lot to work through and wade through, especially as Christians. There's a, there's a lot going on in here, and we're going to focus on two areas. Our battle against sin in the mind and our struggle for peace in the mind. Our battle against sin and our struggle for peace. B both happen here. And these two things, listen, are massively unique and distinctive to Christianity. Here's why. As a Christian... I can call sin, sin. We know sin exists. We might say sometimes it was on accident, it was a mistake, I made a mess up. But, but ultimately, ultimately, it's sin, right? Anything which contradicts what God directs for my life, for the goodness of my life, and the goodness of the lives of those around me, anything that contradicts that is sin. And what sin really means is missing the mark. So if I'm shooting a bow and an arrow and I'm shooting and I have an instructor saying, listen, you're not even hitting the ball, you're not even hitting the target. You've got to raise the bow up, you've got to shift the bow to the left, right? Get an instruction on how to hit the target. And sin is missing God's target for your life. That's the bottom line. Sin is missing God's target for my life. It just is. And so the battle with sin happens here. And the struggle for peace happens here. And I say peace is distinctive to Christianity. Because, listen, real peace only comes from God. Not the God of Muslims, not the God of Jehovah. I mean, the God can only give peace. That's it. The Bible calls Jesus Christ the Prince of Peace. He is the giver the author, and the sustainer of our peace. No one else. And because people are uh, oblivious or naive of a situation, doesn't mean they have peace. If 150 people are flying on a plane, and they're enjoying themselves, and they're, they're playing on their phones, and they're watching movies, and they're eating one of the three peanuts they give you as a snack. <laughs> what is it? The snack? And everyone seems peaceful, right, until someone says, there's a bomb on the plane, right? And then in that moment, you find out who has 
peace. At that moment, you find out if you have peace. All the people took off from the same terminal. They got on the same plane. But only in the moment of crisis, we know who has peace. And the guy who's sleeping through the event because he took three Xanax because he doesn't like to fly, he doesn't have peace. He's oblivious. <laughs> That's not peace. True peace is distinctive to us as Christians. Only a Christian can experience true peace. Because true peace comes from the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Okay? So in the mind, the fight against sin, the struggle for peace. That's where these two things are playing out. James 1, 13 through 15 says, When tempted, no one should say, God's tempted me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Desire pops up in the what? Not the foot. That's a corn. It pops up in the mind. That's where it happens here. The mind is a thought. Now, I want to pause, though, because all thoughts, this is, this is very important. All thoughts are not sin. Listen to me. All thoughts are not sin, even wicked and evil thoughts. Hear me. I mean, there might be the little 75-year-old grandma, two seats down from you. Don't look. Make it obvious. And she's been married to the same guy for 50 years. And for 50 years, that guy said, babe, what draws the bread in? Babe, I got no clean underwear. And for 50 years, maybe once or twice, maybe three times, maybe the thought popped in the head, just push him down the stairs. No one will know. The thought, the, some of the ladies are laughing a little too, like, that hit home. The thought, the thought popping in is not sin. It's not. It's what we do with the thought after it pops in. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he says, and I love this, and this has stuck with me for 20 plus years he compared thoughts to birds in the air. He says, I, I can't prevent a bird from flying in the air above my head. I can't. I can only prevent it from nesting on top of my head. I can't prevent the thought from flying all over the place. I can prevent it from nesting. And, and that's massive as Christians because so many times, and there was in my early Christian life I went through this, and I know Christians who I've had to talk to and encourage, that they think the thought itself is sin. That's a, a scary thing to get believing and trapped. And here's why. Because if I were to put on this screen, if we were able to project my thoughts, you'd be repulsed and leave. And reverse. Yes, in your thought. Don't laugh at me like I'm the reject here. You're like, ah, that guy's got weird thoughts. So do you. Right? If your thoughts were on the screen, then I was like, whoa. Uh, yeah, okay. That chick, Nikki, stay away from her in church. Right? Because that's the human mind. Stuff is flying in and out of it all the time. So the thought itself isn't sin. It's what I'm doing with the thought. How far the thought's getting in, how long I'm letting the thought, and then am I entertaining and acting on the thought. If you've ever visited someone in prison, 
you know that there are, there are, there's no like you just the front door opens and you go in, right? You got the front gates and you have to go through. And every time you go through a certain center uh, of the prison for processing, they unlock the door, you go in, and then they lock the door behind you. And then you go through another, and then they open, unlock the door, and you have to go in, and they lock the door behind you. And if there's a, you're visiting your, your crazy Uncle Pete who's been stealing catalytic converters from the neighborhood, and, he, and all of a sudden there's a riot in prison, you know what happens? What doesn't happen? You don't get out of there. It's not like there's a secret escape hatch in prison. Everything's locked in. They're locked down, and you're stuck in there. Matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, my, my wife's coworker had taken uh, her class to, to Riverhead Jail, and they're in there, and, you know, it's kind of like take, I don't think it's really scared straight. It's just kind of like they take them, they bring them through, and all of a sudden, the CO gets uh, a dispatch on his radio, and all he says, all right, we all have to go in this cell. And they're like, what? So, so 20 kids, two teachers, and a CO go in a cell, and then another CO comes and locks them in the cell. And, and they're like, you know, this is part of the program, and, and the CO is like all serious. And all of a sudden, they can hear, like, things being shouted and lock, lock, and then people start panicking. What happened was that the, 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 the Gilgo Beach killer was up on the top floor, and he had a court date. So he had to come down, and every way he was coming down, every section of where he was coming down was on complete and total lockdown. They, they couldn't get out at that moment if they wanted to. It's slow getting out. Same thing with the brain. Remember I said the brain is sticky. And if sin starts there, and no matter how wicked the thought that comes in there, that's not the sin. It's what am I doing then with the thought? Because the longer I let the thought stay in there, guess what? When it's time to get it out, it doesn't move so easily. It's slow to get out because it was coming through different processes, getting through different checking barriers to get in. And there's no escape hatch. It's like, boom, that thought's gone. So the brain... Our mind, our thoughts is imperative to our fight against sin. It's also imperative for peace. What happens here? Again, I want to say peace, peace is not an arbitrary thing. It's not a weird voodoo, essence, trance, presence, like because you can sit cross-legged and go, mm, that's, not, that's not peace. That might help quiet you, and it might have a lot of health benefits, but, but that's not, peace is not a pseudo-spiritual state. Peace is not emptying the mind. Empty your mind. Go back to the plane with the bomb. Bomb on board. Hold on. Let me empty my mind. <laughs> that's not going to help you have peace. I have ADHD, and you can probably tell that when I preach. Remember the movie Up? Remember the movie the guy takes balloons and he moves his house? And I'm thinking right now, he takes a kid with him. Actually, that's a little weird now. now I'm thinking. But anyway, so do you remember the dog and the talking dog? And every time he'd be in conversation, he'd be like, squirrel! Remember that? That's my brain. There's no, there's no emptying that for me. It doesn't happen. You know how you have peace? Filling the brain. Filling the mind. Not emptying it. You get a cancer diagnosis. Emptying the mind's not helping. Not. Filling it. 
is. And so that's what we have going on here in all this cerebral matter. The two biggest areas of importance every single day for us as Christians is our, in our mind is the fight against sin and the struggle for peace. The fight against sin and the struggle for peace. I want to give you three things. Three things that help me and three things I think will help you in our minds with these two areas. Legacy, eternity, and mercy. Legacy, eternity, mercy. Legacy. I am 49 years old as of last month. I know, I don't look my age. And when I think back, and I do this often, I do this, no matter, once I hit 40, I would think this thought. What did I think of my mom when she was 40? Old. What did I think of my mom when she was 49? Old. I mean, that's just what happens. But as I'm getting older, I, I'm, I have this weird fascination. I'm kind of haunted by life. And I'm not just talking about my life. I'm saying peering in on other people's life. And, and looking into what their legacy is going to be. You know, tombstones have dashes. Date of birth, dash, date of death. And that, that dash, what happens in there, is our legacy. What's happening in the course of our life is our legacy. What are those around you going to remember when you're gone? And listen, when you're gone, that's it. It's over. You're out of here. Eight years ago, my Uncle John, he was having some hand tremors for a few months, and he went to the doctors like, oh, some type of nerve connection. And then one, maybe a few months after, he wakes up in the middle of the night, and he thinks he's having a, an anxiety or a panic attack. And he goes to the hospital, and five hours later, they say, you have a brain tumor. 58 years old. A few months later, he's gone to be with Jesus. Just like that. Everything had changed. He was gone. But his legacy wasn't. And you know what he left his wife and his kids? He, he left them a legacy of love. He, he was an incredible dad and an incredible husband. And I, I got to peer in to look into that. The legacy of my father? You know, when I see my dad, I get depressed. I get depressed for him because I don't know what I would do to myself if I were him living his life. He's 72 years old. A few years back, he survived a quadruple bypass and a stroke. He spent a couple of months in the hospital recovering. He came out, shell of the man he used to be physically and emotionally. He was one of the hardest workers I knew. I mean, he was an incredible worker. His legacy in that area is impeccable. But when my mom was, when we were young, my dad left. My dad didn't just leave. My dad ran around on my mom before he left. And then he didn't just leave us. He, he spent the majority of his life as a heavy alcoholic, doing cocaine, partying, running hard after all these things, all these relationships. You, you see him getting these relationships and these people just using him like a sucker because he was pursu pursuing this thing that he thought he would get out there. And about seven or eight years ago, he's having a conversation with one of my brothers, and my brother was just a real conversation. 
which my dad doesn't do, he doesn't own anything. And my, my brother just like, Dad, you weren't the dad I needed growing up. And my dad said, how dare you talk to me like that? You're dead to me. And then my other brother finds out, I said, you're going to cut him off of the way you've treated us all these years? You're dead to me. And here's my dad now, 72 years old, weak and feeble. He's got a cat. He's got nothing but a cat. Half his kids don't talk to him. And I, when I, he comes to visit us, I get depressed. Like, good God, this is your life? This is your legacy? It scares me for him. But it scares me for me. Because I, I'm like my dad. I have so much in me. My dad just made every decision that was best for my dad. Literally. His entire adult life. Everything was about meeting his needs. And now here he is at the very end of his life. What's his legacy? When sin comes into my mind and wants to lock me in there and get me to go deeper, and then you can't get out fast, remember, I start thinking of my legacy to others, my family, my friends. Because here's where I, get, I have to guarantee you this. No one on their deathbed says, I wish I sinned more. No one. No one on their deathbed says, I wish I made more selfish decisions. No one. It doesn't happen. No one. And you've been to those funerals. I've been to those funerals. Where you go to the funeral and you don't see a tear. No one's mourning. Because the person who died, their legacy was pain. And their being gone is a relief. People might not verbalize that, but they're all thinking it. He's gone. Thank God. So thinking about my legacy, you thinking about your legacy helps you fight sin because guess what? I want to be remembered. I want to leave a legacy. And it helps promote peace in my mind. Here's why. This is, this is just basic, natural knowledge. You don't have to be a Christian here to get this or to, to even say, oh, that's just Jesus stuff. If you do the right thing, do you feel better? Come on. When I get in a big fight with my wife because I'm a moron, can you say that in church? But anyway, I think you can. So anyway, you know what I don't feel? Peaceful. I'm like, oh, I cannot believe I did. Well, at first, I'm like, I was right, and then you kind of like, what the heck was I thinking, right? But, but I don't feel peaceful in that moment. Manage, could you imagine a, a, a trail of carnage and wreckage of your life? You're going to have peace? No. So living in such a way that my legacy is going to be better for those around me, my legacy will be for the betterment of those around me, helps promote peace in my mind. That, listen, when I die, I'm going to be missed. That your life and your presence mattered to people. That promotes peace. Next thing is eternity. Legacy, use that to fight sin and you struggle for peace. Eternity. But, listen, I'm not going probably in the direction you think I'm going to go because when I say eternity or we say eternity, people say, oh, we're going to talk about hell. Well, your hell is bad. There's, that's today's sermon. Hell's bad. 
but you get more flies with honey than with vinegar. So here's the incredible thing about sin. We know this because we've experienced it, and the Bible backs it up. The sin, Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season. Sin is pleasurable for a moment. The Bible doesn't deny the reality that sin's pleasurable. If, if, if it wasn't pleasurable, you wouldn't do it. Right? If, I, if I said to you, yo, check out this amazing thing, it's sinful, but, but I want you to try it. You're like, what? What's up, John? All right, all right, roll yourself around in honey, find a bear cave, go in and slap the bear in the face. <laughs> no, that's not, I'm not doing that. No enticing. There's no desire. Of course sin is desirable. It's what makes you want to do it. But, but sin, sin distorts what God has given you. What has God given you and me? He's given us a capacity for pleasure, okay? Sex, life, sunsets, food, people, friendships are supposed to bring you pleasure. There's often a Puritan mindset in Christianity, Christianity, Puritan, even Puritan, pure. They wouldn't even wear color in their clothing. Today, they, I cannot watch sports. I will not watch TV. I will not watch movies. I, I, can't, I can't listen to... Jimi Hendrix riff on a guitar. I mean, that's beautiful. That's, that's art. That brings me pleasure. I, I see stuff like that. It brings me pleasure. But someone would say, no, pleasure is, pleasure is evil. No, pleasure is not evil. The capacity for pleasure comes from God. He created pleasure in you. Not Satan. Not even ourselves. Psalm 1611, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Ready? You make known to me the path of life. As Christians, we say, path of life. And then it says, you fill me with joy in your presence. Christian joy. And then it says, with eternal pleasure at your right hand. Eternal pleasure. I mean, I know what pleasure feels like. You're telling me eternal pleasure at the right hand of God for all eternity? You see, we often just think about heaven's going to be cool because there's no sin, as if it's a reductionary mindset. Sin's gone. I don't struggle. Yeah, but there's a, there's a plus. There's an additive mindset to eternity. Pleasure. That's why you have a capacity for it. Because in heaven, it's going to be completely fulfilled. And so when sin comes knocking in my mind and wants to take me away and carry me along and, and lock me up, and I start acting out, and I start thinking of eternity and the pleasure, the real pleasure. There'll be real food. There'll be real beaches. There'll be real people. There'll be real wine. I don't know if I should say that, but if you have a drinking problem, don't drink wine today and say, I told you to do that, please. But there will be this incredible, pleasurable experience in eternity. And it will take the most pleasurable experience you've had on earth and make it feel like garbage. God's not holding back from us. He just knows that we have sin in our life. And so when we're in eternity, he's going to maximize our pleasure forever. What's waiting for us in the pleasure department in eternity is going to be mind-blowing. So it's not just about I want to avoid hell. No, I want to maximize my pleasure. You know where that happens? Heaven. I like pleasure. You should like pleasure. God created that capacity in you. If I said to you, spend the next 30 days in jail, you get $20 million, right? For Roger and Charlotte would pick up prison ministry for the next 30 days. 
and Genesis services would be at Yapping Correctional Facility 10 a.m. every morning, every Sunday morning. That's what happened. You would say, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're telling me 30 days in jail, just do 30 days in jail, and I get $20 million. Yes. The most least fit person for prison here would say, sign me up. Why? Because they wouldn't even be thinking about the 30 days. They'd be thinking about the $20 million. And that's what happens in my mind where we have to use as Christians, wait, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall into this sin for what? A little momentary little morsel of fleeting pleasure when God promises me pleasure forevermore in eternity? Like real pleasure. Take the most pleasurable experience you've had on this earth and multiply it by a, a million. That's what's waiting for us. It also helps me with, you know what FOMO is? FOMO, fear of missing out. A lot of times with sin, you get anxiety because you're like, oh, God, if I don't experience that, you get this fear of missing out anxiety. You're not missing out on anything. You, the Bible says that, that God's children will inherit the earth, inherit it. Do you know what that means? The entire south shore of Long Island is mine in the new heaven and new earth. You can go anywhere else. North Shore, you can have with their rocky beaches. I will have the South Shore of Long Island with perfect weather for all eternity. I mean, you think I'm joking, but the Bible makes it that you, we're gonna get, he's going to give us, and the, the universe is going to be open. Whatever brings you the most pleasure in the context of a God-given gift, God's going to maximize it in eternity. So, we looked at that eternity, mercy, mercy. This is my favorite one. You know I love to talk about the mercy of God. Mercy. What's mercy? I tried to come up with my own definition because I just thought it was easier for a feeble-minded person like me to come up with my own definition. Because I read some of the other ones. I'm like, what did that guy say? Nice, simple way to think of it. Mercy is a sense of brokenhearted kindness and compassion towards someone or something in a weakened position. Example, someone finds an animal in a trap. The animal's in an area the animal should not have been in. It's in a trap. The person comes upon the animal. They could do whatever they want to that animal. They could kill it, hurt it, wound it, maim it, anything else. It's in a trap. It's hurt. Except the person comes and they freeze it from the trap. And then it binds up the wound and it takes it home and shows affection. In the moment, that animal was completely vulnerable. That's the mercy of God. Here's why. You can't really understand the mercy of God until it finds you, ready, in sin. You can't. You don't feel, experience the mercy of God when you're knocking it out of the park. Hebrews 8.12 says this, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. You know how you fight sin in your mind? You see the smiling, kind compassionate, merciful face of Jesus. You see, what happens is, I think some of the reasons 
some of us are stuck in sins is because when you sin, you feel <laughs> Jesus is angry at me. You know, the Bible says this real quick. This is a freebie. The law, the law is do this and God will love you. Do this and God will like you. Do this and God will bless you. The law incites sin in human nature. So when you sin and you don't see the merciful face of Christ being compassionate to you, coming to you in your fallen weakness and loving you, and you instead see God being angry at you, there's no, no doubt in my mind while you're still stuck in that sin. That's not the Christian remedy to be free from sin. Mercy is. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, ready? And I will remember their sins no more. People say, well, you can't, you can't say that. Don't say stuff like that. You're going to give people permission to sin more. Guess what? You guys sin pretty good on your own. I sin pretty good. I don't need permission to sin. I struggle with sin every day. I need to see the mercy of Jesus Christ who comes to me in the middle when I'm caught in my sin and has compassion on me. Binds up my wounds and says, come on, come on. And mercy promotes peace, real peace. And this is a big one. And I'm going to end with this. I heard this incredible story. I love this. I love stories. I'm sure you know that about me by now. Little boy grew up in the backwoods in some southern town in the 50s, 60s. 12 years old. For the first 12 years, just him and his dad. They were basically in a little cabin. There were, this is obviously the south at that point was extremely still very racist. And they, they were in a cabin. There was a big town here and a big town here. Both of them were, were predominantly white. And they were not receptive or open to people of color. And so this boy spent literally the first 12 years of his life at home. His dad basically taught him. And they worked on their little farm together. 12 years essentially just with dad. Mom had passed away when he was born. At 12 years old, his dad dies. And that young boy then is bounced from foster family to orphanage to foster family to orphanage. There were a couple white families that adopted him who were racist, and they adopted him. They could get the money from the state. This kid grew up in, it was something like 12, from the time he was 12 to 18, 12 different combined orphanages and foster homes. Then he becomes 18, he enlists in the army, and he goes to Vietnam. Then he's taken as a prisoner of war for a year and a half. And he's listening, and they're just berating him and cutting him down and torturing him. And then he gets released, and he goes back down to the south. And he, he's going to go to college. And they're like, You're, you can't go to college. But it was, a, it was a, a very big medical university. There were not very many black students. And he, he applied. They did everything they could to block him. You, you, you're just not smart enough. You're not, you don't have the capability to do this. And then he finally became a surgeon. And there were times that white patients would say, ah, he's not operating on me. And this guy, this man, became one of the most prestigious surgeons, it's not Ben Carson, 
prestigious surgeons in all U.S. history. This, is, this, this, this killed me. 80-something years old, he's being interviewed by a reporter. And this is how the conversation goes. How did you battle all those voices? All those foster homes and those people who, who looked down on you because of your color. I mean, how did you deal with that? And then being a prisoner of war, and they're just spitting on you and kicking you, and dis you're disgusting to them. And then you, they, they don't want you in the college, and then they don't want you as a surgeon. How did you deal with those voices? And you know what he said? I didn't hear him. And then the reporter said, do you have a hearing problem? And you know what the 80-something-year-old man said? I only heard the voice of my dad. And the reporter said, what? He said, when I was the first 12 years of my life, my dad just built me up and built me up and loved me and built me up. And then you know what? After that, that's all I ever heard. You want to promote peace? Whose voice are you listening to? Whose voice are you hearing? This is why when we push to stay in the word, it's not to fulfill a religious obligation or, it's a, or a duty. I want to, when we said peace is filling, not emptying, I need to be filling my heart and mind and head with what Jesus says about me, what he says about you. And then you know what? I didn't hear him. I didn't hear those voices. I only heard the voice of my father. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's how we live in peace. His mercy, because all he speaks to you is kindness and love and grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the prince of peace. And I pray for each of us today when we leave here. Oh, man. When those voices come in our mind, we don't hear them. We hear you. I pray that this week we would all, every single day, when the voices are battling around in our mind, we would stop and say, whose voice am I listening to? And we pray, Lord God, our Father, it would be you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.